Have you ever heard of apologetics? Not apologies, but apologetics, which means answering. It is the way Christians defend the faith against accusations that it is false, that it is made up. It demonstrates the validity of Christianity in the rational sphere. Now, that is a tried and true tradition. St. Peter says we should be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within us, uh, using the Greek word apologia. Of course, that's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Now, historically, there have been many methods of apologetics demonstrating the truth of the Christian faith and defending it against rationalistic or other attacks. The early church fathers had to contend with polytheism and with philosophy, which at that time, with Platonists running around, Philosophy was more like a religion than some sort of rational exercise. Later on, after the quote-unquote enlightenment, there was a more rationalistic argumentation for God. You had things like the teleological argument, the watchmaker argument, the idea is that there must be a God and we can use the mind to demonstrate this. In the medieval era, there wasn't much skepticism going around. In the West, anyway, there were lots and lots of Christians anyway. Faith in Christ was assumed culturally. But monks would go through various proofs for the existence of God. Thomas Aquinas famously had five methods based on, well, Revelation and Aristotelian philosophy. And then you have Anselm giving us my favorite argument for the existence of God, the ontological argument. But over time, these get assailed by Enlightenment thinkers and deists and eventually the atheists out there like Schopenhauer and Darwin. And as the Industrial Revolution turns into the Capital Revolution, the Managerial Revolution, and eventually the giant tech revolution that we are currently living under, the Christian thinkers and philosophers and apologists and theologians had to become a lot more rigorous in defending the Christian faith. Now, this isn't necessarily to convince people that God exists. It's more about defending the faith that you already have, demonstrating its validity as a part of the uh, Christian teaching that you give to the laity. The laity are getting assaulted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and unbelief with its various rational attacks and archaeological fake history and everything, oh, that is assailing the common Christian. So we got our stuff together around the 1930s to the 1950s and kept going from there. Recently, there has been a renaissance in apologetics, thanks to the likes of Dr. Alvin Plantinga, Dr. William Lane Craig, and others talking about how you really can't deny the facts of the Christian faith. Here's all the reasons why. Gary Habermas goes through history. Alvin Plantinga goes through uh, reasonable belief and warrant. And there have been other thinkers out there, like Phil Fernandez, with his cumulative case 
for the Christian faith, where he takes all sorts of different arguments and puts them together to say it is most reasonable to believe in Christ. With that said, given the background here, there has always been an unfortunate kind of factionalism within the realm of apologetics. Everybody has their favorite method, everybody has their various worldviews that contribute to their Christian worldview, perhaps a philosophical outlook that says some methods are legitimate and others are not. Infamously, the presuppositionalist school of apologetics was very cantankerously argumentative against evidentialist schools, historical schools, and other philosophical ways of going about it. And they also fought amongst each other. Gordon Clark and Cornelius Van Til had such a testy, angry relationship that Cornelius Van Til intervened in Gordon Clark's ordination path so that he would not be ordained in various Presbyterian bodies. Everybody has their perfect method, I guess, and human pride oftentimes keeps apologists from working together. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because today we're going to look at Paul Tillich's approach to apologetics, or more accurately, Paul Tillich's anti-approach to apologetics. We saw last week that he wouldn't tell you that God exists. If you ask him if God exists, he would say that is not a correct statement to make. But if you ask him, is God real, he would say, yeah, because Paul Tillich would say that God is the ground of all being, and as an existentialist type of thinker, Tillich puts ontology on this sort of hyper-pedestal, where if you ask, why is there something and not nothing, you can't keep answering that question with various reasons, whether material or spiritual, without an infinite regress. If you gave an explanation for why is there something rather than nothing, he would say, okay, well, why is that explanation there? There must be an explanation for that explanation for why there is something and not nothing. And you keep going and keep going till the cows come home. This would be a perfectly legitimate apologetic for the existence of God if Tillich was willing to take the statement, something exists, Therefore, God exists before that to make sure something exists. That would be perfectly fine. You can actually argue for that with a rock-solid logical case. However, Tillich has his head up his butt, and he is addicted to the smell of his own farts. He can't just make a straightforward case, and being this ontology goober, he is not going to say something so straightforward as God exists. So let's take a look at how he approaches other apologetic methodologies because he wants you to think the way he thinks. And if you still hold on to standard apologetics, he's going to smack that down for some reason. And it doesn't work. None of his arguments against apologetic methods or arguments work. We'll get into that.
Here he is on the ontological argument. The question of God is possible because an awareness of God is present in the question of God. This awareness precedes the question. It is not the result of the argument, but its presupposition. Well, okay, is Tillich a presuppositionalist? Not really, but he's going somewhere with this. This certainly means that the argument is no argument at all. The so-called ontological argument points to the ontological structure of finitude. It shows that an awareness of the infinite is included in man's awareness of finitude. Man knows that he is finite, that he is excluded from an infinity which nevertheless belongs to him. Okay, so it sounds like he's supporting the ontological argument. Uh, Anselm's ontological argument goes like this. I can think of the greatest possible being having all perfections, period. Existence is a perfection, therefore this perfect being, that then which nothing greater can be compared, must actually exist. If he doesn't, I can think of a greater one that does exist. That is perfectly valid, logically speaking. Uh, even various skeptics out there said, great God in boots, the ontological argument is valid. For reasons unknown, they didn't immediately convert to Christianity. But I digress. If you try to say that existence is not a predicate, as Voltaire and other anti-Christians in history have tried to say, you're just flat wrong. Do you want to know something about Harry Potter? He doesn't exist. Not in material reality, he exists merely as an idea. That tells me something of great consequence regarding Harry Potter, the character from the J.K. Rowling novels. This has a real consequence, and thus is a real predicate. I cannot go out looking for Harry Potter in England, and I cannot find a headstone with here lies Harry Potter or something, because the schoolboy in Hogwarts never existed, and Hogwarts does not exist. Period. So when I think about the greatest possible being, that then which nothing greater can be compared, he exists. I love the ontological argument. That is how it is formulated. Here's how Mr. Tillich approaches that. The Anselmian statement that God is a necessary thought, and therefore this idea must have objective as well as subjective reality, is valid insofar as thinking, by its very nature, implies an unconditional element which transcends subjectivity and objectivity, that is, a point of identity which makes the idea of truth possible. However, the statement is not valid if this unconditional element is understood as a highest being called God. The existence of such a highest being is not implied in the idea of truth. Wait a minute. Didn't Paul Tillich just say that the awareness of an infinite is present in the question of God? 
Didn't he just say that when you ask, does God exist, you are already aware that he must in some way be there, because you could not otherwise be aware of such thing as an infinite. Ah, but here we are introduced to Tillich's method of smacking down apologetic arguments. A little bit of history here. Typically, if an apologist wants to argue for his method above all others and say, mine is legitimate, yours is not, period, what he'll do is he'll come up with a rule or he will cite a specific logical law that says all these other things are illegitimate. Gordon Clark was infamous for this. Gordon Clark carried around an axe called the Law of Non-Contradiction. And he would investigate and put any worldview under the microscope, see where the violation was of the Law of Non-Contradiction, and he'd chop it down. The Law of Non-Contradiction states A cannot equal non-A in the same way, same time, or same fashion. You cannot have A be non-A at the same time. Gordon Clark would look at every single worldview and every single other religion and even other apologetic methods, take his axe to them and chop them down. And, of course, he wouldn't chop his own tree down because <laughs> it's the only one left. You gotta believe in that one. Tillich is doing the same thing, but he doesn't have an axe. He has a pool noodle. Tillich's pool noodle is, wow, nice argument you got there. But what if I bring up my own ontological ideas and my existential opinions? Yeah, really serves you right. You're, you're pwned. It's like he takes a pool noodle up to these various trees of apologetic arguments, lightly and limp-wristedly slaps it with his pool noodle, and then he looks at you and declares victory. He's not actually arguing against it. Here he is against the moral argument. The same must be said of the many forms of the moral argument. They are valid insofar as they are ontological analyses, not arguments in moral disguises. That is, ontological analyses of the unconditional element in the moral imperative. The concept of the moral world order, which often has been used in this connection, tries to express the unconditional character of the moral command in the face of the processes of nature and history which seem to contradict it. It points to the foundation of moral principles in the ground of being, in being itself. But no divine coordinator can be derived in this way. The ontological basis of the moral principles and their unconditional character cannot be used for the establishment of a highest being. A bonum ipsum does not simply imply the existence of a highest being. So this is another example of him slapping an argument with a pool noodle and then declaring victory even though nothing happened. Because he's not actually addressing the argument. What is the moral argument? Morals exist. Universal, always applicable moral laws exist. 
You cannot have a law without a legislator or one to establish that law because morals are opinions at the end of the day. And if it is universal, it is not just an opinion, it is a law. Therefore, there must be a divine mind which imposes this moral law on us. To deny this, to claim that there is no moral law, if there is no God, that is, then there's no such thing as quality, and there is no such thing as morals. All ethics becomes a matter of personal arbitrary opinion. It is not, this is wrong, or this is right, it's a matter of, I don't like this versus I do like this. Murder. Well, I don't like murder, therefore I will say murder is wrong. Completely arbitrary, and it does not explain common morals throughout history or our revulsion at crimes like pedophilia. Continuing on, though, the strength of the moral argument is that it can go further. There is no such thing as quality at all if God does not exist. You cannot say anything is preferable or unpreferable. Even your opinions are invalid because if materialism is true, there is only phenomena. You are just a hunk of rotting biological matter that is doing one thing or another that we can't quite describe other than simples as a cloud colliding with other simples. It is not this man murdered other people. No, it is one biological mass did something to other biological masses which caused them to no longer have a living function. The moral argument demonstrates that since this is not the case and quality does exist, we can make moral statements. Therefore, this God that must be the absolute moral ruler of the universe, he exists. Paul Tillich grabs his pool noodle of ontology, slaps this ironclad argument, and says, Actually, all you're proving is that morals exist. Sidestepping all of the personal character of morals, of laws, of matters, in which the violation or obedience of such a moral law either disgusts us or makes us angry or delights us when it is obeyed. This requires a god. But Telex is actually, no, -uh. I'm just not going to address that part, and I'm just going to say ontology, 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 and, and then move on. I have slapped it with my pool noodle. I declare victory. Now, to his credit, over the course of these arguments, it does seem that Paul Tillich is trying to wrestle with real ontological questions. Can you separate God from truth? Well, if you're a Christian, no. That's the answer. No. Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father except through me. So we would say, God is the truth, or at the very least, he is the one by whom all truth is established, because truth is a part of his nature. But Tillich, because he's talked about this 
constant, infinite ontological regress, just because he thinks asking questions means there is a regress, he separates the notion of God from truth, and therefore he has this nice handy little tool where he thinks, if I can just ask ontological questions over and over again, it invalidates any argument. Or at least, at the very least, says, well, it's true in this way, but not in another. It's a horribly flimsy way to go about things, and it doesn't actually cast any doubts or aspersions on these apologetic arguments for the existence of God. It really doesn't. But, Lord bless him, his little heart for trying. Next week, we are going to get into part two of Tillich and Apologetics, because he has a specific disdain and hatred for things called cosmological arguments, arguments from the teleological nature of the universe and the existence of the universe itself. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you, because he truly exists and he truly does love you, because he is true. That's part of his nature. Amen and amen.